you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to get them out. I hope you bring that every Sunday or have a device that you can follow along in Scripture. Um, There's a passage that is listed in your bulletin that I do want to read, but I'm not going to preach from it. Um, But it does set the background that I want you to be thinking of. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that, and, and then, we'll, then we'll get started, okay? These are words of the Apostle Peter, his first uh, letter, chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I want want that to sit in the background and frame the context for which we think about our our subject this morning. But as I was preparing this week, I I was led to some other words that the Apostle Paul wrote in in his letter to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians will be in chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles open, you can flip over there. We'll read a passage from there in in just a minute. But uh, we do have a mature conversation uh, to have this morning and, and next week. This really will be a a two-part sermon uh, this morning. I, I want to talk about and develop with you a Christian sexual ethic. Uh, and next week, we'll talk about the ways in which humans rebel against the Christian sexual ethic and warp and twist it. And we will talk about sexual sin. We'll talk about same-sex attraction and marriage. Uh, so if you think about it, two messages... Uh, in two weeks, it's, it's not really enough, but it is enough to get the conversation going. Uh, it is enough to point us to some scriptures that may help us um, think through these things. Yeah, at the outset, I, I, just, I just want you to know that I don't have it all figured out. Um, I, I am reading, I am studying. I'm reading the Bible, I'm having conversations with people, and I'm praying about this. And I would say that as I think through these things, there are places where I am stretched as well. You know, last week we talked about some things, I know some of you disagreed with what I said, and I'll be honest, I disagreed with some of myself. Because there is a tension within me in in how I want to think, how I've been taught to think, and what maybe I think the gospel is calling me to. So I want to tell you, uh, you have permission to disagree. We're we're thinking through these things together, prayerfully, and letting Scripture interpret our lives instead of the other way around. Um, This area of sexuality is particularly relevant and it's a very delicate uh, topic these days. Uh, I've watched as the predominant culture has seeped into Christian thinking. 
And I've seen how it's convinced people that what is labeled sin in the Bible is no longer classified as sin out in the world. I've seen the devastation in marriages and friendships. I've sat and I've listened and I've counseled many people who struggle with sexual addictions and issues that range from pornography to same-sex attractions. And I, I may not have it all figured out, but I, but I believe that I know of some scriptures that can point us in the right direction and can, all do us some, can do us all some good in the area of this conversation on sexuality. <laughs> There's a lot of sermons that are easier to preach than this one, just to be honest. Um, there, there are lots of sermons that are much less risky than the series that, that we are in. Uh, but I believe at the core of who I am that the church has a responsibility to engage these issues um, and to speak into the culture. And, and I believe that if the church has that responsibility, that I personally have that responsibility to equip you, to equip us to have these conversations with our friends and loved ones and our community. Silence isn't an option for us, um, but nor is abrasive grandstanding or moralizing. Uh, we're trying to speak truth in love. We understand that Jesus was both uh, grace and truth. That doesn't mean that Jesus was 50% grace and 50% truth. Jesus was 100% grace and 100% truth. He didn't back down from anything that he said, yet people were drawn to him when he stood up for what he believed. He loved people. And we're trying to speak and converse in love as well. And all I'm asking is that you prayerfully and thoughtfully engage with these conversations and with the scriptures that we are studying and see just how might they fit into your life. And if you feel particularly challenged, I want you to think that maybe that's the Holy Spirit nudging you along in your relationship, trying to deepen your faith in God and challenge things that you may try to keep hidden or, or away from God. I, I grew up in a church climate that I remember being characterized by thou shalt not. Did I get the voice right? Thou shalt not. Uh, no drinking, no smoking, no drugs, no sex. Those were all things that were characterized as being bad for you. If you grew up in that same kind of a climate, um, it was the keep your pants zipped version of sexual education. Um, it's how young people should act before they are married. It comes across as sex is bad, that sex is taboo, that it's even this dirty thing over here. And, and, you know, I remember having it spoken to me that once you lose your virginity, it seemed like everything else was lost. It was gone. You'd never get it back. Yet, in all of that thou shalt not, sex is bad culture, somehow 
magically, instantaneously, on your wedding night, it turned into the best thing ever. <laughs> so there's a tension that's in play, right? Thou shalt not, sex is bad, and all of a sudden it turns into the best thing ever. See, the teaching that I remember came across as something that, ad that advertised the not part. It didn't allow, it didn't, it didn't seem to allow, it didn't feel like there was any room for grace whatsoever. So, what happens when you get carried away in the heat of the moment? Well, what if I end up doing something that breaks these rules on sex? Is there forgiveness for me? Or is all lost? And I want to say it now if I forget to say it later. So just so you know, yes, there is grace and there is forgiveness. Period. You might say that I heard Peter's words from the passage that we just read to be holy as a command. A command that, care, that was almost impossible to achieve. One that uh, carried with it a, a long list of rules and regulations. Because if I'm going to be like, if I'm going to be holy like God is holy, my goodness, that's going to be really difficult to check off all those boxes. See, I viewed it as a list of rules that if you broke any one of them, it made a blemish on your scorecard. And the idea was not to have blemishes on your scorecard. And you definitely didn't want to have the big blemish of sexual sin on your scorecard. That's the church climate that I remember. And I'd have to say, if I look at how society has changed since, let's just say, 1950, that that kind of preaching doesn't seem to have been effective. If you look at the moral trajectory of our country, uh, you could say that there's been a steady decline in what we would consider to be biblical values since about 1950. For example, uh, there's been a steady increase in teenagers being involved sexually. In 1950, 5% of girls and about 10% of boys in high school were sexually active. In the early 2000s, that number has grown from 5 to 10% to 70% of girls, 80% of boys. Steady decline. If I were to tell my kids that sex is bad, that would be a flat-out, bold-faced lie. God made sex to be wonderful. Yes, sex can be used for evil, Sex can be used to gain dominance over somebody. Sex can be perverted into all sorts of bad things. But sex itself, it's not bad. It's good. I'd rather practice teaching all of us, and our young ones especially, that, that God designed sex to be a wonderful expression of love between a man and a woman, specifically within the boundaries of a covenantal marriage.
And already, with that last statement, we're way beyond what the culture says is right. Already, I, I have said some things that would anger a whole lot of people. And this week, I really want us to focus on, and I want to think about what God intended for human sexuality. But here's what we're up against. For the world, and increasingly in the walls of the church, the attitude on sex is anything goes. If it feels good, do it. It's a moral free-for-all out there. Uh, the sex culture is all around us. Music, movies, entertainment, clothing, Facebook, it's everywhere. It's almost impossible not to be exposed to sexual images. The number one word that is searched for on internet searches is the word sex. Number one search word is sex. One in five searches on mobile devices are for sexual content. One in four smartphones or tablets, one in four have some kind of sexual content saved on them. These images, they creep into our lives through our eyes and through our minds, uh, and it finds its way into our hearts and our desires and our marriages. There's all sorts of sexual sin around us and in us, lust and fornication and casual sex in the hookup culture and sexting and cohabitation and heterosexual sin and homosexual sin. Sexual temptation is all around us. There are 70 internet hits on porn sites every second. That means that while we are gathered in this worship service, that there will be 357,000 internet clicks on porn sites. And if stats on churchgoers are correct, many men here in this room uh, and listening online uh, have visited these sites over the last days and within the last week. W women aren't absolved from this issue either. Increase in engagement with pornography is on the rise amongst women. Um, and there's a, there's a hidden kind of subtle pornography that women sometimes succumb to, and, and that's the romance novel. Women are driven by narrative and story, and, and men are more driven by visual images. Um, so why, why is this so prolific in our culture? It's not just pleasure, it, it comes down to money, dollars. Uh, there's profitability in the sex industries. Uh, pornography, for example, is a $13 billion a year industry. Sex trafficking is a $58 billion a year industry. Prostitution. Market, marketers have figured out that just using sex suggestively can sell anything from car insurance to toothbrushes. Sex sells. The world markets the allure of an exotic and an erotic sex life. That they have figured out that sexual desires are some of the most powerful things that we have inside us as, as human beings. The current movie, that you may have heard of it, Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, it's a romance novel fitted for the big screen. 
It's about sexual domination and conquest uh, has grossed over $400 million already in two weeks. People are, are interested and in tune with these things. The world has a powerful influence over us. And sometimes, most of the time, I would say that it overshadows the church's efforts at teaching and encouraging people to save sex for marriage. I, I came across this. I, I thought it was funny, so I'm going to share it with you. Uh, Mike Glenn, he writes, The baby boomers are coming into retirement age. They are getting a little older, and age does things to you. So we invented Viagra. We can't cure the common cold, but that one we figured out. We don't want, and here's, here's the point, we don't want anybody or anything, even Mother Nature, to limit our sexual freedom. We want to be able to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, and with whom we want to do it. Our goal is to fulfill whatever desire we might have. That's at the core. And I want to be really clear about something this morning. Uh, we're not just talking about people somewhere out there. We're talking about us. Uh, we all, every single one of us, has the capacity for sexual sin. Nobody is immune to it. Uh, sexual impurity uh, is all around us and has seeped into our lives and we're becoming desensitized to its influence. Uh, much of it no longer shocks us anymore. Uh, it's sad to say, but it seems like it seems like sexual impurity is just becoming part of the norm of of our culture out there and in the church. This is what we're up against. And I also want to say, we're not dealing with a new set of issues. None of this is new to the world. This has all happened before. Maybe our modern technology, maybe media accelerates it a little bit and makes pornography and other images that much more readily available to us. But the whole notion of doing whatever feels good, it's not a new thing in the world. And I want you to listen to some words that were directed to the young church in Corinth. So if you have your Bibles, and probably a good time for a stretch, would you stand with me to honor the authority of God's Word? I want to read a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Paul tells these young Christians, I have the right to do anything you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in the spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. The Corinthian Christians, the church, a small group of people in a city of several hundred thousand people, they were up against a culture that weighed heavily on them. And there were certain rights that they enjoyed as citizens of that community, and they were trying to exploit those things, and they were claiming this freedom in Christ as, hey, I have the freedom in Christ, I'm saved, but I can enjoy all of the rights that my culture says is okay. Uh, the sexual climate of the early church, especially in this city of Corinth, Corinth would be like Las Vegas. You could say of Corinth, hey, whatever happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That's the kind of culture it was. It was very sexually promiscuous. Um, there was uh, a lot of open sexual expression, uh, even as part of their worship. There were temple prostitutes that would come out and walk the streets, so part of your worship could be in, in the pagan religion would be engaging with prostitutes, both men and women. Uh, sleeping around on your spouse was viewed as a right in society. Uh, sexual freedom was their right and their privilege. Uh, if it felt good, do it, was their mentality. The body was made for sex, so go for it. That's, I'm talking about Corinth. You, we could be talking about today, though, correct? They wanted to continue enjoying these rights. But Paul says that just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean that it's healthy or, or good for you or holy or God-honoring. See, the Christian sexual ethic is not so much about denying rights as it is about calling people to a better, more holy, pure, God-honoring way of living. It's being caught up and told into a, a larger narrative than the one that is out in society. See, what we do with our bodies is, is extremely important. There is a huge clash between uh, culture and the Bible at this point, but Paul isn't creating anything new here. He's going all the way back to the early pages of Scripture, to back to Genesis 1 and, and Genesis 2, and, and he's saying that we are all made in, in the image of God. And as followers of Jesus now, your body has literally been joined to Christ. Your, your body is not something that's going to be thrown away on the trash heap when you die, but this is a body that God said he will resurrect. Paul says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And sexual sin violates this sacred sanctuary and God himself. So honor God with your body, for it's not your own. That's part of Paul's argument here. He's not trying to be some religious prude. He's, he's trying to teach an ethic that God laid out way back at the beginning. God created sex for marriage, but our world has turned sexual desire and practice into this moral free-for-all where the only rule is you do what feels right to you. And Paul believes that this is absolutely 100% dangerous. And he's pretty clear that sexual sin is particularly devastating in our lives. Your body is not meant for sexual immorality, says Paul. It's made for the Lord. It's made by God, and it's made for God. So how should we respond to sexual temptation? Paul says, run! Flee! In the, the line of a famous movie, run, forest, run. Get out of there. I love the Greek word that he uses. It's a fun word to say. Fugo. Can you say that? Fugo. Fugo is the word for flee. It means to run, to escape, uh, to shun, to move the other direction at a high rate of speed. Uh, he could be referring back to Genesis 39. You remember when Joseph had found his way into Egypt and was tempted uh, sexually by Potiphar's wife? And, and what does the Bible say? It says that he fleed. He ran the other direction. I think when I would come across this word, uh, I remember uh, going through and teaching Dave Ramsey's uh, class on finances, uh, financial peace. He talks about running away from being in debt and he uses the picture of this gazelle. He calls it, you have to have gazelle intensity to get out of debt. And in one of the videos that shows this big cat, I think it was a cheetah, that's chasing this poor little gazelle. And the gazelle is running for everything that he is worth away because he doesn't want to get swallowed up by debt. You could think the same way sexually about sexual immorality is you have to have gazelle intensity to escape it. Run, flee, move the other direction at a high rate of speed. Well, what is sexual immorality? Paul uses the Greek word porneia. So you could say, fugo porneia, and you have a, a Greek sentence there. Flee sexual immorality. And you can hear in that word porneia, our word pornography. It's a wide-ranging term that refers to all kinds of sexual sin. Paul is saying that there is to be no sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. None. Zero. No premarital sex. No homosexual activity. No adulterous affairs. No pornography. No sex jokes. No second glances. No impure sexual thinking. Run. Flee. Escape. All of these things, they are sin. Now, to suggest that this is sin, to say that these things are forbidden by God himself, it goes way beyond what the culture 
and many in the church believe and practice. I mean, we are swimming upstream through a class five rapids at this point. And many at this point would, uh, would write me off, would, would say that this is outdated, that the Bible is no longer relevant, that this is just being judgmental and even downright hateful. But one of the first things that Paul says to link a, a pure heart, to talking about pure hearts, is to avoid sexual sin. Why? Because it controls your mind. And what's in your mind ultimately will control your body and your actions. And we'll talk about this more next week, but uh, in the meantime, remember two words. Fugo, pornea. And it's not an Italian sports car. I want to tell you that we have something beautiful to run to. And that's God's design for sexuality. Uh, and I, you, know, you could talk about God's design as, as, he, as saying God designed sex for love and for life. That he made sex to enhance love between a man and a woman in marriage uh, and to have life, to, to procreate. You could say that um, God designed sex for sexual pleasure and enjoyment. Um, and these are things are not some accidental byproduct of his design of human beings, but that he clearly made it that way and it intended that way, that sex is for pleasure and for procreation. Love, it's a... It's a way for a man and a woman to, to deepen their love for one another. It strengthens their uh, marriage relationship. Our sexuality is the uh, expression of it physically in, in marriage. It also bears witness to the way that, that God is and the way that God loves. Sex, as God intended, uh, is unselfish. And it creates this zone of security and freedom where deeper love can grow within that marriage relationship. God made sex to uh, enhance life. We get to participate with God in the very process of creation. But also, too, we can't dismiss the fact that uh, as our souls are knit together in relationship with our spouse, we are given life through that. This is part of the biblical picture of human sexuality. Uh, Daniel Heimbach, he, he writes a fairly long book, but he adds to this conversation and I think some very helpful ways. And he discusses seven characteristics that extend this picture of God's design for sex as being um, life and love. And, and the first thing is, number one is sex is relational. From the beginning, God planned for there to be relational intimacy between a man and a woman. Sex is not just some uh, physical act that's removed from relationship. It's not something that's purely mechanical that happens between two objects. It's personal, and it's, it's just not something that is to be used for self-gratification. Sex is relational. Two, sex is exclusive, or covenantal, you might use that word. Um, Solomon wrote in Proverbs, drink water from your own well. In other words, share your love with your own wife, your own spouse. And all throughout the Bible, cover to cover, sex is only celebrated in an exclusive covenantal relationship between a husband and a wife. 
There's no exceptions to that. No other sex is celebrated in the Bible outside of that. Sex is covenantal. Number three, sex is intimate. Sex is obviously physical, but it's emotional. It's spiritual as well. Sexual intercourse creates this bond between two people. The two people, we are told, become one flesh. And we're not just talking about physically fitting together. The word that's used for flesh there is one that that has a larger meaning. It means person. The two become one person. Knit together emotionally and spiritually. Your, Your bodies and spirits bond together. So sleeping around is... Well, it's dangerous. Uh, If you practice bonding with multiple people, you leave part of yourself with them. You have bonded with them. You can't undo sex. Over time, you find that you bind yourself, and then you fracture that bond. And if you keep along that pattern, uh, it begins to destroy your capacity to love. Paul says that you're violating your own soul at this point. Sex is intimate. You become so close to another person that nothing separates you. You fully know one another at that point. Number four, sex is fruitful. We talked about that. It creates life. Number five, sex is selfless. It is sacrificial. In uh, 1 Corinthians 7, I was reading this this morning, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4 The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. It's mutually submissive. Each partner thinks of the other person first. And it's, it's kind of a paradox, if you think about it. The more you focus on your own personal uh, pleasure and satisfaction, the less that it's possible. But the reverse is also true. The more you focus on your partner, the more satisfaction you yourself will enjoy. Sex is unselfish. It's selfless. Number six, sex is complex. It's multidimensional. It's not just bodies coming together, but it's minds and souls too. If you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 28, uh, anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sexual sin can enter through our minds. You, You can't isolate sex into neat little categories of body, mind, spirit, It always involves all of them. Number seven, sex is complementary. Men and women are designed uh, to complement one another, to fit together. Uh, For each of us, our own gender renders us incomplete. Our bodies make absolutely no sense uh, by themselves. We cannot conceive and bear young on our own. Male and female are complementary. They fit together. This this is God's design. Yet humans rebel against this. 
and question, did God really say that? And we live in a culture that screams, I don't want anybody to limit my freedom. I don't want anybody telling me what I can and what I can't do. And that attitude that's out there also has infiltrated the church. Statistics show that sexual addictions and interaction with pornography and divorce and sex before marriage aren't much different in here as they are out in in the world. Many Christians wonder, what's the big deal? It's only sex. What two people do in the privacy uh, of their own home or wherever, it's their prerogative. There's this fading belief that sexual relations outside of marriage are wrong. There are Christians who are increasingly less likely to believe that God offers anything of value when it comes to talking about their human sexuality. In studying for for these messages, I came across a new term that I think fits uh, very well. I think it was coined by a gentleman named Ken Luck. He was writing in a an article for Charisma. I think that's correct. Uh, And the term he used was sexual atheists. And what he meant meant by that, what he is describing is that he's describing followers of Christ who are unwilling and refuse to let God speak into their sexual life. These are people who profess a belief in God and yet, and, and they claim Christ as Lord but only to a certain point. There, there are boundaries to allowing Jesus in, and a sexual atheist does not believe that God should or can uh, speak to their sexuality in practice. They no longer believe that God knows best or has anything of value to say about sexuality. So you end up keeping things from God. We are taught that faith in Christ should bring obedience and transformation in our lives. And refusing to obey this, uh, it really calls into question one's commitment to Christ in the first place. Uh, Because you have to ask, what's more important? Is Jesus and what he wants for me more important? Or is my own satisfaction more important? And there's a competition there. We'll talk about that more uh, next week. Uh, There's this ancient story about a group of people known as the Franks. Uh, They were a pagan tribe of warriors who were converted to Christianity. And like many tribes, uh, they, they submitted to baptism altogether. So the whole tribe was converted. They all came into the waters of baptism Together, And so they would wade out into the water. And, and the Franks, these warriors, knew that at some level, that being baptized into Christ would turn their allegiance to a new king. And they also knew that this new king named Jesus was also known as the Prince of Peace, which totally went against their ways of violence and warring. And the story has it that these Frankish warriors, as they came out into the Rhine River uh, 
to submit themselves to the waters of baptism, they, they carried their sword. And, and when they were plunged under the water, they held their sword up above their head. Because they knew if their sword, and they weren't trying to keep rust off of their sword, they knew that if the sword went under the water with them in baptism, that, that they could no longer be people of violence. What they were trying to do was protect their sword from conversion. They were hanging on to some other part of their life that they weren't yet willing to give up. And one of the greatest challenges of becoming a follower of Jesus is our desire to hold things above the waters of baptism, to reserve things and hold them back from Jesus. And the truth is, there's nothing that we have or that we are that can be kept free from the lordship of Jesus. Not money, not our will, not our sexuality. In our opening scripture, Peter said that we should be holy because God is holy. I read this as a promise. Give everything to God. Even the things that you are currently holding in reserve from him. Trust God, the creator of the universe, the creator of your body, to know what's best for you. And as I read these words, be holy as I am holy, I hear it as if you submit to God everything that he will, he can, he's powerful enough to make you holy. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. We're going to go through a few more songs. And I just ask that you be present in a spirit of prayer. And if there's something that you need to confess or repent of, these altars are always open. But if you're, if you're a young person here today, I want you to know that God thinks sex is awesome and special and powerful and, and I want you to know that he desires for you to trust that he as the creator of your body just might know what's best for you I don't want your picture of what the church says to differ with what God intends I don't want your perspective of the Bible's view on sex to come across as negative. I want you to be part of a greater story. I want you to live a called out life, seeking to honor God in all you do, in all you think, in who you are. I want you to honor him with your body. God gave us the gift of sex. But he has some guidelines that, that he says that we should respect. Not because he wants to keep us from something wonderful, but, but he wants that wonderful thing to be amazing beyond your wildest imagination. He wants your sex life to strengthen and enhance the relationship that you share with your spouse. 
I want you to think of all these positive things. I want you to know this. I want, I want you to have these as the reasons that you wait until you're married. I want these to be the reasons that encourage you to remain faithful to your spouse. You, me, all of us are part of a greater narrative than what the culture would suggest. God will fill you. God will satisfy you. He will hold you up when you struggle. Sex doesn't bring ultimate satisfaction. Only God does that. Lord, thank you for these moments together. Lord, we are your people and we need help. Lord, we are people and we need to confess. None of us is immune to this. Lord, I pray as we continue in our worship service together that your Holy Spirit would continue to move amongst us. And if there are things that we need to confess and repent of and get straight and put and plunge under the waters of baptism, that we would be a people who feel free to do so in the context of public worship, where there's no judgment, there's no condemnation, only grace, only forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.